Sit back, it's time to get groovy. Question, do you remember that movie? All right, welcome to the podcast. My name is Alejandro Rosa. I am the third Alejandro Rosa on IMDb, and I am your host today. We are going to discuss a film called The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, which was a made-for-TV movie released on May 8th, 1988, directed by Robert Altman. But in order to get to that movie, we actually have to go back to 1951. The Kane Mutiny was a fiction novel written by Herman Woke, based on his experiences aboard two destroyer vessels in the Pacific during World War II. The novel went on to win the 1951 Pulitzer Prize for fiction and was a New York Times bestseller. In 1953, Herman Woke adapted his novel into a two-act play called The Kane Mutiny Court Martial. It premiered on Broadway in January of 1954. In June of that same year, Columbia Pictures released the Kane Mutiny, a film based on the novel, starring Humphrey Bogart. A couple of more things happened, Broadway revivals, etc. In 1988, Robert Altman directed a made-for-TV movie called The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, and that is what we're talking about today. This is essentially the film version of the play, so much so that Herman Woke agreed to the production on one condition— not one line of the play could be changed for the film. On our podcast today, we have the man responsible for taking me on this darn deep dive. An actor, a director, a professor, a playwright, an improviser. And I have probably missed a bunch of other things that he's also done. Mr. Clinton Johnson. Hello. To start us off, before we can talk about this movie, we need to talk about you. Oh, really? And by that, I mean, I need to know one thing. Yes. Who was Clinton in 1988? Oh my gosh. That's, <laughs> that's a weird question. Clinton in 1988 was in his first year of college. That's who he was. Uh, so he was finally, finally out of his house, kind of on his own, um, going through all of that. And actually he uh, was just into uh, I don't know how, how relevant it is. He was just into a decision to uh, leave behind almost a lifetime of theater, you know, to become an adult, because, of course, responsible adults don't pursue theater. Did you see this film in 1988? I did not see this film in 1988. OK. When was the first time you saw it? As far as you can recollect. I must have first seen it in... 92 or 93, maybe 94, somewhere, somewhere between 90, 92 and 94. Uh, this is before, you know, long before streaming, there were still video stores, but it was part of the, but I, as I remember, I think the video store was starting to go into decline. You still had blockbusters. You still had Suncoast, but there was so much competition. You had these mom and pop stores, which were great, wonderful. Um, but uh, videos, video rental had become such a thing that I don't know if people remember this, but grocery stores were renting videotapes. Cruising through the video section at our local Kroger, I found this tape for the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. And I don't know why I tried it, but I did. And I loved it. And I must have rented it you know, multiple times, more than two times. Finally, it got to the place 
where I said, I, this is, this is a great movie. This is a really, I love this movie. This is becoming an important movie for me. I want to own it, but I couldn't find it because it's so obscure, right? Or at least I think it's pretty obscure. It's like, I mean, it's Robert Altman, but I think it's kind of the lost Altman. Well, because it's a Robert Altman made for TV movie. Yeah, exactly. In, in, in preparation for this, I went on YouTube to look at, just to look at what people were saying about Robert Altman as a director the mostly the things that I saw were people just sort of listing his movies and it's like, and then he did this and then he did this and then he did this. And this is what he's famous for. And nobody talked about this. Nobody talked about this at all. Like at the time I couldn't, like I couldn't find it anywhere. I forget whether or not I brought this up or whether the person at the Kroger brought it up, but I was talking to whoever the attendant was and either, either I asked or he said it, he said, do you want to just buy that copy? And I'm like, could, could I actually do that? He's like, yeah, yeah. So I bought the copy that then I'm pretty sure it was their only copy. Sure. <laughs> Probably looked and saw that I was the only one renting. You were the only one renting it for the last several years. Yeah. And so I bought the copy and that was, that was my copy. I never even, I, I never even got it on DVD. That was the copy I had for, for years. And when was the last time before this time that we watched it? When was the last time that you had seen it? Probably, probably still in the nineties, probably still in the nineties. Cause, cause, uh, yeah. Cause like I said, uh, like I said, I never got it in DVD. Um, and, and, and yeah. Wow. Well, in order to get to the meat of the film, I've written what I'm referring to as a 30 second summary. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Let's see how I do. All right. All right. And you tell me if I missed anything major in my 30 second summary. I've never done one of these before. So, all right, here we go. 30 second summary. I don't have a sound effect for this. Spoilers. <laughs> I thought about doing a sound effect and then I forgot. Okay, here we go. 30 seconds. Stephen Merrick, played by Jeff Daniels, is on trial for mutiny. Lieutenant how dare you? Yes, I know it's Lieutenant Stephen Merrick. All right, fine. Lieutenant Stephen Merrick, played by Jeff Daniels, US Navy, is on trial for mutiny during World War II. What, uh, wait, excuse me, sir. I have other. It will. It will show up. It will show right, up. Right, right, sorry, sorry, Jeez. All right. Lieutenant Stephen Merrick of the Navy, <laughs> played by Jeff Daniels, is on trial for mutiny on December 18, 1944, during a typhoon. Merrick relieved Lieutenant Commander Philip Francis Quig of duty as captain of the USS Kane because he believed Quig had become mentally unstable and was putting everyone on the ship in danger. Two months after the events on the Kane, Merrick is being court-martialed in a naval military court. The only thing I would tack on to that is, is, is defending him uh, is Barney is, is lieutenant. Is it lieutenant, I think? Lieutenant, um, mm-hmm. Uh, Lieutenant Barney Greenbaum. Is it Greenbaum? Greenbaum. I have it as Greenwald. Greenwald. I could be wrong. It's Lieutenant Barney Greenwald of the Air Force, who does it reluctantly, having been asked to defend Merrick by the prosecuting attorney, who is an old, old college friend of his. Played by the magical-looking Peter Gallagher. So young. So, so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> he's still beautiful but oh my god like you see him in this film and you're like yeah that's why people started casting you the moment you could talk yeah they're all and they're all so young um yeah, jeff daniels is very young as well 
Barney Greenwald played by Eric Bogosian. Very famous theater actor in his own right. Yeah. And this was this, that was one of the, the first things I think that grabbed me about this film is because I had I had heard of, of of Bogosian before this film. And I'd heard of him because of a theater or I think a performance art piece called Talk Radio, which he wrote. Right. Right. And, and I was and I was surprised to see him do something like this because I was thinking of him as sort of improv performance artist type person. And I wasn't expecting to, to see him in such a scripted role. Uh, and didn't know how he would do it. He just, just, he rocks it. One of the things that um, I like about this movie is that it's so Altman, but it is not Altman. Like it's got a lot of components of Altman, but then some components of not that, that aren't so Altman. Let's actually explain that because I know what you're talking about and you know what you're talking about, but maybe somebody who may not be familiar with Robert Altman because they're not the level of nerd about film that we are. Let's introduce them. What what do you consider, uh, what are the traits of a Robert Altman film? Robert Altman films, he tends to deliver a realistic slash naturalistic feel to his films. He prefers that in his, both in his um, production design, but also in the way he directs. And one of the significant ways that he gets that is that he uh, advocates uh, people talking over each other in dialogue. Uh, so it makes the dialogue sound, again, more realistic slash naturalistic. He will do a lot of long shots or mid shots with people, with groups of people in them. So you can see different people doing things at different times or different people doing different things at the same time. But also it helps build a sense of ensemble. And that's something that he's also known for. Robert Altman movies frequently are ensemble movies. And even if they aren't, they can have an ensemble feel to them. I think another component of Altman films is that his camera movement, he will engage in zooms in kind of obvious and engaging ways. Maybe that like, yeah, they will be, he will use, he will use zooms conspicuously, yes. um, but not, but not, I think jarringly, if that makes sense. I, I like to describe Robert Altman's camera style as the camera wanders. Yeah. It likes to wander in the story, in a scene. And it will wander towards the person talking. It will wander away and focus on someone else while the person is still talking. Even if it's the lead character, it will still, it, it wanders in and out of scenes in a lot of his films. I don't know how Robert Altman did it. He would use movie stars the way you're not supposed to use movie stars. The way Hollywood runs is the way Hollywood has run ever since there was a Hollywood, in fact, before Hollywood. And they got this practice from, from theater before that, which is, you sell movies based on the personalities in them. You, you market movies based on actors and based on stars. Like when people complain about, oh, such and such person only plays themselves. That's how movies are marketed. Like that's how movies are made. That's how movies are sold. This whole idea of an actor being someone who can play different parts of an actor having, quote unquote, a range is, is new, is relatively relatively new so what altman will do is he'll have he, he doesn't necessarily cast people against type but he casts people outside of type and i think related in that i think he gets really really good performances from people so something that i didn't know don't know if you did but he also directed theater oh i did not know that there is a film that was apparently pretty famous called come back to the five and dime 
Jimmy Dean, Dean, Jimmy Dean. He directed that on Broadway. <gasps> and he directed the screen version. And here's, here's an interesting quote, because I did find some quotes about him. Without Bob, I would have never had a film co- career. Everyone told him not to cast me. Everyone. Nobody would give me a break. That is one of the cast members of Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, a young woman named Cher. Ah, whoa! Julianne Moore said that the films of Robert Altman are the reason she became a film actress instead of a stage actress. Wow. Here's something that was from his biographer. He did not like the term storytelling in films. Here's the quote. He disliked the word story, believing a plot should be secondary to an exploration of pure, or even better, unpure human behavior. Maybe that's why this movie is so strong. Because one of the things that surprised me about it is uh, it surprised me to think of Robert Altman doing such a heavily scripted piece. And maybe that's part of its strength because it's so, so solid. The skeleton, the framework, the plot is there. And so that Altman can just give it all of the nuance and character and really make it hum. For those of you who have not seen this film, this film takes place in a gymnasium on a base. And there are exactly three exterior shots. The entire thing takes place in this gym. Not the entire thing. You think you're thinking you're you're forgetting what I think of as act three. <laughs> you're right. There's one scene that takes place out of the gymnasium and it's the very end of the film. It's the final scene. I even have it written as the party scene. And it's striking, right? Because we've been because of what you're talking about, we've been in this gymnasium all the time. All the time. And then to suddenly be somewhere else. You're like, wait a minute, what? There's so many intricate things in this movie. There are moments where somebody is giving some kind of, you know, they're testifying and, it, and the camera just moves over to somewhere else. Like there's a waiting room and sometimes it goes to the waiting room and, or it just goes to the stenographer who's just <laughs> sitting there. Ty- and then all you hear is the, the clickety clacks of the typing. Um, there was another moment where there was a marching band at the very beginning of the film and then it disappears. And then in the middle of someone's testimony, it starts coming in again, suddenly. Whose who's testimony it was? I do not. Because I noticed that this time, uh, I believe that it's Queeg's first testimony. This is one of the rare films that you're going to see where there is music, but all the music is diegetic. Explain that to us. What do you mean? All the music exists within the world of the film. Even though there is music where you expect there to be music, like the movie opens and there's this music playing, but the music's playing because of that marching band. There's a lot of absence of sound. Right. uh, Except for the occasional sound that he puts in. That's usually, that's part of the scene. Like the stenographer, um, Quig carries these um, metal balls, clearly a coping skill that he uses. And at times you just hear them. You just hear them and you can tell that they crank up the sound of just those balls while people are talking. There's just just these very specific choices. I will also say, I don't know if this film is for everyone. Oh, really? It's it's not. <laughs> Clinton. It's, but it's not so for, good. <laughs> yeah, but I think but that it's, 
it's so good. <laughs> it is. It is. But I can see people being unnerved by it. I can see people finding it kind of boring. Um, it's very small. It's very quiet. And the payoff is in the performances for sure. But the payoff is truly in the party scene. One of the most, I think, important scenes in this entire film is the last scene. It is the one scene, like we said, that takes place outside of the gymnasium. It takes place after the court-martial, where Merrick has been acquitted. Go ahead. Just to lead us into the party scene, I want to bring up one thing that I really like about this movie, and speaking of Altman, uh, I went on YouTube and looked for video essays on Robert Altman's craft. Anyway, they were just lists of his movies. But one person says something really interesting. He said that a common thing that you hear is that the sign of good movie acting or the sign of good filmmaking is when you look at a character and you know exactly what they're thinking. And, and there's certainly some truth. There's certainly a lot of truth in that. But he says that Altman provides a counterexample in that in Altman films, frequently you will look at a character and you won't know what they're thinking. And somehow the magic of Altman is he does it in a way that makes it not jarring, that makes it not shallow, that doesn't kick you out of the narrative and doesn't confuse you. What it does instead is really bring out the complexity of human beings. His enjoyment of the complexity of human beings and of character really feeds into a motif, at least, if not a theme of this, you know, that we have a surface personality and then we have all of this stuff that is not necessarily nice or not necessarily desirable that's just bubbling underneath it. And if you think about so many of the performances in this film, it's that. And it's perfect for these military guys because they've got all this way that they're visually presenting themselves on the surface. But at the same time, that's why all of these comments like the homophobia and the classism and even the racism, like that's all so important. A really great example of what I was talking about before with in terms of not knowing what people think is when you get to Queeg's second testimony, his direct examination by Greenwald. And so for people to know, Barney Greenwald has decided that the only way that he can win this case, like it's ridiculous. The presumption is certainly on Queeg's side. Like nobody wants Merrick to be innocent. Not only is he captaining a ship in the Navy, but it's wartime. They don't want him to be wrong. I think it's also important to note that Merrick is not a longtime Navy man in comparison to Queeg who I believe they state is like 13, 14 years in service and is a commander, has served in wartime. He's a high-ranking officer. And part of the big deal of this is this young officer taking command over him. And Merrick is only, like, he hasn't even been in a year yet, has he? Or something like that. Yeah, it was like a year or two years. Right. So Greenwald, it is revealed later, the only way that he can win this case is to show what Quig is actually like, is to get him to display the, the unstable aspects of his character. And so he brings him on in direct examination and just holy smokes. It's not the standard courtroom scene 
Like he doesn't break him down. He doesn't badger him. He just sets him up and just pulls oh so gently. And Brad Davis, like he just unravels. <laughs> so one part of the reason why this, and it's so hard to watch. Yes. Right. And I think part of the reason it's hard to watch is because of Albin and because of the way he does the camera and how much time he spends looking at people other than Queeg. And we see how uncomfortable everyone in the room is. And because we are social creatures, we take those cues. As this goes on, nobody wants to see this. It's this really hard and horrendous, but like beautifully acted, just deterioration of Queeg on the stand. And afterwards, it's totally clear that the guy has problems with stability. I mean, in his closing argument, Greenwald says, you've seen Queeg's demeanor in this courtroom. You can only imagine what he was like at the head of a typhoon. There's this great and wonderful moment where after Queeg is gone, like he's gone on this rant about how his officers are disloyal and he's never done anything wrong. And like, if he didn't have these like lying, cheating, disloyal officers that were poisoning the crew against them and trying to ruin his career, like everything would be fine. And Greenwald, just to put the cherry on the cake, says, thank you, sir. And goes up to him and says, okay, so I have here a performance report for Lieutenant Merrick from such and such a date. This is after all of these things have happened that you've been talking about. And he says, yes, yes, it is. He says, would you please read this performance report. And it's a, it's a glowing performance report. But what happens is that Brad Davis looks at it and he starts to read it. And then does this really shocking thing. Like he turns and looks to the side where Merrick is and, and, and Altman keeps it with Davis. It's not a shot reverse shot. Altman just keeps it with Davis. And it's such a striking moment. And you're not really sure what's going on on Davis's face. Like, it's really compelling. But like, is it is it pleading? Is it him as he realizes what he's about to do? Is he is it like, please don't make me do this? Or it also looks almost kind of loving, like this is what I wanted for you or something. It's just it's this baffling look, but it's totally arresting and totally compelling. Then. He goes and very quietly reads this stunning report and just puts the nail in his coffin. And I think he knows it. One, I love that moment. But two, I bring that up because if you haven't seen this film, you have to understand going into the party scene, going into what had, had to have been the third act that what Barney Greenwald has done, even at the end of that last scene, the, the, the captain who's leading the, the panel says, your defense was ingenious and you're a really talented lawyer, but with talent comes responsibility. And you will have to ask yourself if you've been responsible today, right? Like he's won. He's had to do a horrible thing. What you did to win sucks. Yeah. You won and I couldn't counter you. I couldn't tell you to stop. But how you did this is horrible. And that's the party ritual that comes into scene and in the party scene. Talk about the party scene. But but we have to say one more thing before we can say anything about the party scene. Something we have not discussed. Lieutenant Barney Greenwald is an outlier in this courtroom for two reasons. Ah, yes. He is Air Force. Yes. And he is Jewish. Yes. 
there are two lines in the film referencing the fact that he is Jewish. One is said by Captain Blakely at the beginning of the film. Right. Jewish guy, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's a Jewish guy. Yeah. And uh, essentially says, you know, watch out because they probably have something up their sleeve. It's very voyeuristic. It sounds like we're listening to a private conversation. It's just between the two of them. Yeah, it is a quiet aside. It's just that Robert Altman puts the camera there. Talk about the second one. Talk about the second moment. In the second moment, Peter Gallagher, playing Lieutenant Colonel, Lieutenant Commander John Challey, is it in his closing argument? It's in his closing argument. And in his closing argument, Peter Gallagher, who is visibly upset, refers to his shyster tactics. That is a quote from the movie. Not something I feel like saying. Just had to say it because it's important with the party scene. And it's so out of line. Captain Blakely actually calls him out on it and refers to it as an unfortunate personal slur that he has used. So we have our lovely Jeff Daniels, Stephen Merrick. He has been acquitted. One thing that I need to, I, I just need to say this just one time because I haven't said this in the podcast. You haven't said this either. Lieutenant Barney Greenwald, like we said at the beginning, has picked up this case like four days ago. From the beginning of the film, you don't understand why he's there. He doesn't care for Merrick at all. And he says at the beginning of the film, he says, I told you when I first met you, I'd rather be prosecuting you than defending you. But we never learn why. And the entire movie, you're just like, gosh, he is giving a great performance as an attorney. But why? And he says, I want to win this case. I want to win this case. And it kills me how much I want to win this case. <laughs> and so he wins it. There are multiple witnesses who are members of the cane. And one of them is a writer. <laughs> Lieutenant Thomas Kiefer is one of the witnesses that are brought in, uh, the sailors from the USS Kane. And he says he is one of Merrick's good friends. And Merrick thinks, like, he's my guy. Yeah. Merrick had thoughts about Quig's instability prior to the typhoon, and he confided these with Kiefer. And Kiefer gets on the stand and says he disagrees with Merrick which is a big surprise. It is also revealed that Kiefer is a writer, has written a book, and there is a line where Merrick is very thrilled that Kiefer is there, but Lieutenant Barney Greenwald says, I wish he wasn't involved in this at all. Right. And that doesn't make any sense to Merrick or to us, the audience, until the party scene. Yeah. So the party scene is a double celebration. It is a celebration of Merrick being acquitted, and it's a celebration of Kiefer getting his book deal. He just got an advance on the book deal. There's even the cake in the shape of a book. I think it's important to know that the book that he's written is a book about the Navy. And we understand that it's not a flattering book about the Navy. Lieutenant Barney Greenwald shows up to the party. He had been invited, and he shows up completely intoxicated. Plastered. Which is so odd, because the entire film, he is so stern and serious and in control and here he is stumbling into this party and i thought to myself watching it what is going on here what is this i don't understand especially when he won but he doesn't look like he won do you remember what he says go ahead i've been drinking with the prosecuting attorney trying to get him to take back some of those names he said about me because <laughs> again they're old friends from college right exactly <laughs> 
This is a very Altman scene. Everyone is talking at the same time. It is chaotic. It's brilliant, but it's completely difficult to follow. He likes the multiple people talking because it, it makes you, the audience member, have to lean in and listen. And so they're celebrating, right? Kiefer's saying all kinds of stuff. Merrick, everyone's cheering. Greenwald is trying to say something. He is saying it, but it's hard to hear what he's saying because everyone's talking at the same time and laughing. As the scene keeps going, you start to realize he's not saying something happy. How would you describe this? I would describe this as one of the great monologues in theater. And I would describe the scene as just um, that it's really Altman playing off of his strengths. And also, there are not many cuts in this scene, are there? I mean, there are cuts, right? I think so. I'd have to watch it again. The camera's following them around the room because they keep moving. See, it's Altman, so it's not it's not necessarily accurate to say that he that it's following him around them around the room. Because sometimes, like there's that one point at the beginning where the camera just stays there and Greenwald and Kiefer walk to the back of the room while Greenwald's talking and you're seeing Merrick closer to the camera as he's trying to get a drink or something. And Kiefer is kind of trying to get away from Greenwald and Kiefer comes back closer into the shot with Greenwald following him. I like it when people can do that, when they change the composition of the scene, not through cuts, but through camera movement within the scene. It's this really, really great speech. It's where Barney Greenwald reveals what he's been about through the whole thing, why he didn't want to take this case and what he has seen, what he immediately saw that nobody else did, which was that Merrick was full of it, that basically Kiefer was the person behind Merrick, that Merrick was manipulated. Well, yeah, was kind of manipulated. Like Merrick did not have the education or understanding about Freudian analysis, about psychology. Understand, this is 1944. Psychiatry as we know it is like half a century old. It's not like today where everybody understands the basis. Everyone's been to therapy. No, it's still really new. Merrick did not have the background, did not have the education to understand. But Kiefer, Kiefer did. So it was Kiefer who put these ideas in Merrick's head. Kiefer who said, yeah, I'll support you, and then didn't to cover his own ass. It was Kiefer that was moving behind the scenes the whole time. And his reason? He's a pompous ass, and he hated Quig because Quig was a tin pot dictator. Nobody denies that. Like, was he unstable? Yes. Was he an immature hard ass? Yes. Was he a bastard as a commander? Yes. And this is the brilliance of the speech is what Greenwald brings to it. He says, see, here's the thing. I'm Jewish. And the Nazis, they're not messing around with the Jews. They think we're nothing. They want to take us and they want to turn us into soap. He's like, you know, I guess being soap is good as anything else. But I just I just can't cotton Herman Goering wiping his fat little behind with my mom. (laughs) And then he talks about, you know, so things get bad and what can they all do? None of them can do anything to keep the Nazis from doing bad things except for Quig. And says, Quig is probably my, the reason that my mother survived. This long-term, long-term military guy who's just been one of these grunts in the service doing their jobs. And he says, the reason he's hated this case so much is because 
Kiefer and Merrick, they did the unforgivable thing. They took a working battleship out of battle during wartime. And it's a devastating speech. For anybody listening, we are not remotely doing it justice. It is so powerful. It took me aback. I remember the movie ending and me just thinking about it because it's such a build. It's a very quiet build. And Bogosian just, he rides it. He just rides the whole thing. He should have won an Emmy, damn it. Can I give you my my favorite bit of trivia about this scene? Okay. In Tootsie, Dustin Hoffman's playing an actor, professional actor in New York who just can't get parts. And the beginning of the movie is a montage where you see him auditioning for all of these roles that he's not getting. One of the audition pieces that he's doing is this monologue. Final thoughts. Any issues come up with the film in the rewatch? Other than the fact that it has almost no diversity and women are not really present at all. Although it does have that one really nice moment where Kiefer is doing his toast to Barney Greenwald before... Greenwald launches into his counter toast. <laughs> Kiefer does this sort of this rhyming toast and he talks about uh, how Barney Greenwald has liberated them from being the galley slaves of the cane. And he says it in um, the stereotypical coon like black, the galley slaves of the cane, which is such a great piece because they've got an African-American man as a waiter <laughs> who's, you know, who's serving at the party. And there's a cut there, which is not a smooth cut. It's kind of, I'll say it, it's kind of a clumsy cut, but because, you know, Altman wants you to see this, Kiefer says, the galley slaves of the cane, and it cuts in on this guy who just rolls his eyes. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm so happy you said that because I saw that too. And I was like, that was not an accident. Yeah. That was so perfect. Yes. By the way, the only African-American in this film is that one. And he's brilliant. Unnamed actor. Brilliant, had two seconds on screen and he was fantastic. And it's so and it's so great. It's so important for that to be there because it gives you the key. It's one of the only moments you get to see before Greenwald goes into his revelation that Kiefer is a self-involved ass. I'm going to give you one factoid at the end of this, but I'm not going to give it to you now. But just thinking back, you watch this in the 90s. It is now over 20 years since you last saw this. The question that we always ask, does it hold up? I think it does. I think it does. I'm now shaking because you say you don't think it's for everybody. And I, <laughs> and I can't really counter your reasons. Um, it disturbs me. I'm sorry that it isn't for everybody. But I think it holds up. Like I said, I think Altman does a stunning job at doing the type of filmmaking and using the type of style that he does. And I think it works with this material. I think he gets stunning performances. And I think like, I just can't get away from how good the acting is across the board, just across the board. Thank you for making me go down this rabbit hole with this entire film slash play slash film slash everything. I will give you my last bit of trivia. And that is the Maurice Micklewhite factor. Maurice Micklewhite was a, an actor in England, was on the phone, I believe it was like a phone booth, with his agent. His agent told him, you cannot use the stage name Michael Scott. It's taken. And Maurice Micklewhite looked around, saw a poster for the Kane mutiny, and he loved Humphrey Bogart. So he said, what about Michael Kane?" <laughs> Thank you so much, Clinton, for joining me and going down deep into 
this beautiful film that some of you will love, some of you will not. Last thought. I'm so glad to reconnect with the movie. Seeing it, it reminds me that this became one of the most important, a really important movie for me. As you said, uh, I am a theater person. I'm an actor, I'm a a director, and I learned stuff about how to direct, about how to tell a story from watching this movie. This was a really transformative and foundational film for me. And we will leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alejandro. Sit back, it's time to get groovy. Question, do you remember that movie? 